0: You are listening to understanding disordered eating with rachel heinemann i'm a licensed mental health counselor and a certified eating disorder specialist on this weekly podcast we talk about all things psychoanalysis and eating disorder recovery it's a combination of interviews with experts in psychoanalysis and eating disorders and some solo episodes with where it will just be the two of us the goal of the podcast is to help you try to understand a little bit more about yourself Gain a deeper understanding for why you do the things you do and bring you one step closer to a healthier relationship with food and yourself. Hey, 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 episode 101. Now, before we start, I wanted to ask you a favor. Back when I first started the podcast, I was doing a lot of research about what bumps your podcast up to the top? What increases visibility? How, how do you help promote your podcast? And a lot of the consensus I got was that the ratings doesn't really have much to the ratings and subscriptions don't really have much to do with the rest of it. And now that it's two years later, I've heard otherwise. So there's definitely like a split camp here about what helps and what it doesn't help. But what I'm asking of you is on the off chance that it helps and we can help other people find this podcast who can really benefit from learning from this information. Can you subscribe either on Spotify or on Apple wherever you find your podcasts? I'm actually not sure if you can do it wherever you find your podcasts. I'm pretty sure you you can definitely do it on Apple and on Spotify. And um, if you have an extra 30 seconds and you feel like rating it, I would love that, but just subscribe and see what happens. Thank you. So today's podcast episode, we are yet again talking about the whole CBT versus psychodynamic, but from a little bit of a different perspective. So I'm obviously talking about it on my own. This is going to reflect my own experience personally, professionally, from what I learned with... you know, different relationships and why I align much more with someone who's psychoanalytically minded than somebody who is behavioral. So let's just first preface it by talking about what some of these things are, because I think that very often we run into, oh, jargon. I want CBT. I want a dynamic therapist. I want a DBT because DBT is indicated for borderline personality disorder. And I can act because that's the thing that's been indicated in this sort of research, and I think we sort of fall into this medical model pit. And what I mean by that is, it is so easy because it's simple to look at something as diagnosis, treatment, pair the two, end of story. Which is sort of what the medical community does. They have to do is think about something from a diagnostic perspective. What sort of blood tests and other tests are we going to do to make a diagnosis and therefore what treatment are we going to administer and usually treatment is medication or there are might be procedures but it is more black and white now enter mental wellness mental health mental illness whatever you want to call it it is not black and white at all and so even when we enter diagnosis there is no such thing as a blood test or an x-ray that shows somebody has whatever mental illness. It's not that clear cut. And maybe you can say, oh, but there's been research where this part of the brain lights up and that part of the brain lights up. And maybe that's true. And that is incredible for neuroimaging and for neuroscience. And I'm all for that. But it's not like you can go for a test of your brain, a brain imaging test, whatever they're called, And go in and say, oh, yes, I do have an eating disorder. Or, yes, I do have general anxiety. It doesn't work that way. And so, in the end, we're left to the specific practitioner's understanding of what the diagnosis is and then matching it with your experience. And then, very often, maybe not, but very often, you'll have practitioners who might differ on diagnosis. And I don't necessarily think that. Is the end all and be all. Like, oh my God, we have a different diagnosis and, and therefore we can either get better or not better because the indication for treatment doesn't necessarily rely on a diagnosis. Now, I think part of what the behavioral models or something like CBT has done is try to medicalize, if that's a word, I don't know. Otherwise I made it up. Try to medicalize it in that, okay, you are diagnosed with depression. Here is the prognosis and here is the treatment Insert treatment, X amount of sessions, this is what you do, and then you're better. Perhaps you add a little bit of medication, and it is so clear-cut. It is so simple. And we love that. We love that because if you have ever struggled with depression or anxiety or an eating disorder or anything, or you know somebody who has struggled with it, that option is way more enticing than something that might be a little bit more messy or... Not clear cut. And I think what often is lost with something like a CBT model is that we lack the nuance to understand that everybody is different and it doesn't necessarily work for everyone. I'm not saying that CBT doesn't work, CBT is incredible. CBT has completely transformed the entire movement of treatment. I mean, beforehand, it was I mean, pretty much analytic and much more open ended. And so people who would have typically benefited from CBT perhaps didn't. And now there are so, so many people that are getting better or feeling better because of CBT. So I'm not in the business of bashing any form of treatment, especially if it's as effective as CBT, DBT, ACT, all of those letters. But I do think that when we equate CBT with EBT, which is evidence based, then A, that is inaccurate because it is not the only treatment that is evidence based. And B, go back to all the episodes that talk about what research in this world looks like and who is the one pushing for research and why we're getting certain results. How you read a research article, all of these things. So when someone says evidence based, for any type of mental health treatment please know that there are so so many ways to make that complicated and I guess I'm not saying that if someone it's evidence based think that that's wrong and then there are holes in the research but think about what's the control so did i compare somebody struggling with depression who gets cbt administered quote versus somebody who doesn't get any treatment or just gets supportive treatment, like somebody who's just sort of like sitting with them? Or is it compared to somebody who might be performing, quote, psychodynamic, psychoanalytic psychotherapy, isn't properly trained in it, and the CBT is much more manualized, and they're well-trained in it. And so you are not comparing apples to apples whatsoever here. I think there's so much more to be said about where the evidence-based treatment comes from and how we have attributed it to only CBT and related therapies. And we have specifically withheld it from psychodynamic psychotherapies, which is its own kind of worms. For all intents and purposes, what I'm trying to say is that just because somebody says this is evidence-based, it is a lot more complicated than that. And please know that what we're talking about tried and true treatments, especially something that's been around as long as psychoanalysis has been, you cannot possibly say that it is not evidence-based or not as evidence-based. I don't know if there's like a comparison, like if this is more evidence-based. Because yeah, there are more research studies conducted to prove that CBT works. But I have so many questions about that. And why are there not more studies for psychodynamic psychotherapies? So what I'm saying is take it with a grain of salt. But back to uh, more of my own experience about why I'm not solely a CBT practitioner or a CBT practitioner at all. We have different words to use for the things that CBT therapists do that are certainly within the realm of a psychodynamic treatment. They might look identical and someone might say that I'm engaging in skill building or whatever it is. And we have our own language for that. so. It's not like CBT is outside of the confines of psychodynamic psychotherapy. But I think most of this is not so much what you're actually seeing, especially as a client and uh, even a practitioner. It's more so what's behind it and how is the practitioner thinking about treatment. And what I mean by that is how are you conceptualizing this person? How are you looking at the person in front of you? And thinking about how they came to be. Are you thinking about, okay, so this person is, this person has an eating disorder or they're depressed, they're not doing all these things. Really, we need to get them to do all these other things. And so let's have them fill out a food log, let's have them fill out a a scale of sorts, and and let's have them journal and do all these behavior chain analyses and, and these things that are probably helpful. But, you know, just sort of ending at those are the things that really make a person change as opposed to thinking this person in front of me has an eating disorder. Where did the eating disorder come from? Why is it still here? What would happen if we took it away? What sort of feelings would this person have to feel? What makes those feelings so difficult to tolerate? I mean, the questions go on and on and on. And so when I look at a person right in front of me, I see a person I see their history, I see their relationship with their emotions, and I see how they're trying to keep themselves safe. Instead of just thinking, oh, here's some symptoms, we have to get rid of them. It's a lot richer when you think about a person. So let's just say, for example, if we're talking about filling out a food log for somebody who is struggling with their relationship with food and their dietitian or their therapist says, okay, fill out this food log about what you ate, how you felt, et cetera. Now, somebody might have trouble with that for whatever reason. And, and the CBT therapist might say something like, okay, what's really zero in on this? Like we really have to buckle down and get you to fill this out. How can we have you fill this out? And the way that I might think is, Okay, this might be really helpful, but something is holding you back from being able to do that. What is that? When you sit down to do it, what comes up for you? If you had to do it, what would you be facing? What would be taken away from you when you did it? All of these questions about what's behind the motivation to do something or not to do something, I think, actually helps us understand how we can better help this person. And so... This analogy that I sort of thought about like three minutes ago as I was talking is a musician. So say we're teaching a kid how to play music and or somebody in the beginning stages of playing music or singing, whatever it is. And we're trying to teach them how to, let's just say, play the piano. And we give them books. and they learn how to read notes and they start playing. That's great. They probably play beautifully, especially if they keep at it for years, they just sort of this follow this formula and then they play. Now, what if we took the same person and we taught them the theory of music, how it happens, how to string things together, what all the different pieces mean? So that instead of just giving them a piece of music, they're reading it and copying it for all intents and purposes by playing it and, and sound beautiful. We can teach them to understand the art of it. And then to take this analogy, to think about it even differently. If we're thinking about somebody who works in food media, or they are a food blogger, and they create recipes, so they might be able to play around with things and you know be creative with it. That's wonderful. But what about the person who actually understands the science behind what happens? And how does this ingredient help that? And how does this type of heat help that? And how does this kind of time impact the recipe? And then the sky's the limit with what they can do. And so I think the same thing happens with a psychodynamically oriented treatment as opposed to a CBT. CBT only goes so far, it can really, really help with somebody who's, you know, needing skills, who's just, you know, not really sure where to turn and, and is maybe a much more simple case of, oh, I just didn't think about that. I need someone to help me through this. Now, when we get something a little bit more complicated, someone feels absolutely stuck. Say they've even been trying to work on their relationship with food or whatever it is. Instead of just saying, push through it, push through it, we have to think about what's keeping you stuck. We have to be able to play by ear and work on our... Feet, or what is it? No, think on our feet and work quickly. What is going on in the room with this person sitting in front of me? And how can we work with the material that we have right now? It really requires knowing the theory behind how the human mind works, the development of psychology. And all of that stuff, in order to integrate that into a therapy session that might almost look identical to somebody who hasn't had the training, but just sort of tries to wing it. I think it's the kind of thing that you can't really tell on the outside if someone's doing a really good job at it. So now, some other limitations of just employing CBT is what happens when someone feels frustrated. And you're talking about, how do we get around the frustration? How do we get you what you need? All that stuff, as opposed to thinking about, what is it like to feel frustrated? What's the history of that? How do we sit with it and use it as information as opposed to an obstacle? What about if someone's having trouble with their relationships? Maybe skills would be incredibly useful. And and it's so important to make sure that this person is challenging themselves to do things that are really difficult in relationships, But what about the larger interpersonal pattern that's happening that probably wouldn't be addressed or even noticed if we were thinking about skills building? So not to say that skills building isn't important, but we're doing the thing where we teach the person to fish as opposed to handing them some food, which I think is ultimately the most invaluable thing you can give to somebody in therapy is to say, you've done this. Now do this on your own, as opposed to you've come in with this issue and we've handed you a solution to this issue. But when there's something else that comes up that's with similar dynamics, or when you're trying to work on another issue, you don't really have the skills to think about the other issue because we've only addressed this one thing. And so what psychotherapies do is that it provides a depth and nuance that is not really prescriptive. It is very vague, which is why we can't possibly answer the question of how long this will take. But it really addresses the entire human and the why behind what drives them. Another thing that made me think about this particular podcast episode and and sort of why I did it was because I see on social media very often really doesn't matter who it comes from, um, meaning what kind of person it comes from, whether it's a super person has tons of experience with therapy, or they're a therapist themselves, or they're a psychiatrist, or they're a dietitian, where they sort of use social media to share ideas, which is wonderful, but also very two-dimensional. There is no nuance on social media. There can be. It's not a conversation. It's just a social media. But for example, something that came up is people were talking about how they really disliked when their therapist talked about different policy changes in the session. And they felt like it was a waste of their time. And why am I paying this person to talk about their policy changes? Now, first of all, I think that (laughs) I can speak for myself that when I'm frustrated with something, I most definitely will exaggerate the situation. And so... I don't know. I wonder if it's the entire session is happening. But, yeah, anyways, I digress. Not really the point. Heard of what was said. Let's just use the example of a fee change or a cancellation policy to enforce that they would use, let's say, sending it in an email or a text message just to sort of inform people that this is what's going on. And And, you know, if you have any reactions, we can certainly talk about it. But I think what that lacks is this idea that if I am telling somebody that my fee is going to be increased, oh, you had better believe that this person is going to have a reaction. And I think that it's obviously so important to talk about the person's reaction to a fee increase or another boundary set because that is what we call transference and that is the frame of therapy. That is how therapy works. And we end up being able to use our relationship and the stuff that's happening between us to really understand what goes on for this person outside. And so it turns into a conversation about money and spending money versus saving money and paying someone for help. I mean, this is Absolutely loaded. And I completely understand why therapists wouldn't want to do this. I mean, it is it's uncomfortable for anyone to talk about this stuff. I I don't really know anybody who's so free with talking about money and it's totally a non-issue for them. And so it's a lot easier to send that message for a therapist in a text message or an email and just create distance and see. Oh, let's let this person just think about it. And what has happened with me when I do this with my people. Is that the initial reaction, the one that would happen when they opened up their phone or their email to see the message would be completely lost. And what we would deal with is a watered down version of their reaction, which I don't want to deal with a watered down reaction. I want to deal with the whole entire thing and to see the trajectory of people's reaction to setting a boundary, saying a cancellation policy or a fee increase and watching it in front of my eyes and really sitting in it with the people who are in front of me, I mean, that's the most powerful way that you can address a treatment. And so just saying like, why should this person have to pay you for t- you telling them that there's something else going on? Well, usually it takes about 60 seconds max and the rest of it is processing the person's reaction. I would say it's a cop-out. It's a cop-out for people who don't want to do really hard work and for the people who feel really uncomfortable talking about what's going on with me and you in the relationship. I obviously am I totally agree that therapists shouldn't use the session whatsoever for their own stuff, but I don't think that this falls under that category exclusively. We've talked about this before, where it it could be about the therapist who's like, "Oh, where'd you get your sweater? I love it." Then they're going to tell you about their kids, and all that stuff is not appropriate, like not not appropriate. So, if we're talking about inappropriate versus appropriate behavior from a therapist, like, yeah, okay, fine, we're all going to side on the appropriate side of the line. But the question is, how comfortable are you with the uncomfortable conversations? How comfortable are you processing? feelings. And you know, and I'll speak for myself, how comfortable am I processing feelings that the people in front of me are having toward me that are not entirely positive? And if you as a clinician and you as a client can tolerate those uncomfortable conversations, you struck gold. And I think when we think about something from a much more black and white diagnosis equals treatment, use an evidence-based model, insert prognosis, That is when we lack the depth and the nuance that is absolutely necessary for real, deep change. And that is why I don't practice from a CBT perspective. And I consider myself practicing from a psychodynamic psychotherapy perspective or an analytic perspective. And I really hope that even if this is something that you 100% disagree with, you can at least understand Where I'm coming from, as a psychoanalytic psychotherapist, we do not shy away from anything uncomfortable. And that is what separates us from the rest. You made it to the end. Thank you for listening. Every single one of your downloads means so much to me. If this conversation is leaving you wanting more, be sure to sign up for my newsletter you'll have the opportunity to reply back directly to me over there. Can't wait to see you in your inbox.